This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. I'm so excited for our next guest. He's a friend. He might not admit that, but I am. I don't know. He's a comedian. <laughs> you know him, of course, from Mad TV. Orlando Jones is joining us on Let's Go There. What's going what? on? What's up? Oh <laughs> What's happening, Ryan? What's happening, Shira? Welcome you know, to the show. Yeah, we're excited to have you. It's been a while. Uh, I feel like last time I've seen you in person was like at Comic-Con or something. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yep, I guess, yes, the last Comic-Con, not the one that didn't happen just now, just recently in 2020. But you're still busy. Didn't you like partake in like a virtual Comic-Con or something? You know, I didn't. I've been really busy on the animation side and, you know, and then obviously press for Good Lord Bird and all that sort of stuff. So it's been a little crazy, but all good. Okay, but before we get into this, I said I had a Lord, uh, Orlando Jones story that I needed to say. So oh, what? Not, not like a moment with you but just a piece of history because you are obviously someone who I have followed my entire just my life I guess I would say just because I'm a fan of your work and Drumline was like literally one of my top five movies of all time and so the story is I found out about like one I was getting Drumline the movie like Mm -hmm. the DVD during Christmas and that was like the correlation of me finding out that Santa Claus wasn't real because my mom had hid it in the closet and I found out and it all happened at once where I was like oh my god I'm super excited about Drumline Line, wow. which I immediately like opened and like watched it at midnight and then I snuck and put it back in so my mom didn't know that I had reopened <laughs> all the presents. <laughs> so like that's my Orlando. <laughs> that is <laughs> awesome. That is awesome. You <laughs> snuck into the Christmas presents. I for sure did. I, that was that's like the, uh, that was I mean, I remember that Christmas because that was like obviously the Christmas where oh. I got a lot of amazing stuff, but then also I got that and then I also I found out that Santa Claus wasn't real. So, mm-hmm. so basically the, uh, <laughs> a moment of trauma for him is connected to you. Yes. <laughs> yes. How beautiful. 360 moment. <laughs> so, Orlando, you've obviously been busy in quarantine. What's life been like for you? I know you're not in Hollywood. You're not like in LA or New York. No, I live in North Carolina. So my, my life hasn't changed a lot. I'm still, still pretty much uh, hanging out with my girls or at home. That, that's it for me. That's the South, to be quite honest. I feel like that's just if you were, because I'm from the South, in all honesty, like, mm-hmm. I think if you're just moving along, you're just keeping it going, like you're not into the whole hoopla of everything, right? Definitely not. I'm, I'm you know, listen, I, I spend my days happily playing my three-year-old Paloma and I, you know, we got a whole unicorn unicorn boy we got unicorn unicorn girl one's yes. blue one's pink you know what i mean we got a lot of stuff going on we got a lot of toys we're playing with right now we got a lot of fantasy games that are going on so you know between that and uh my oldest raquel who's 10 and subtracting in the thousands and hanging out and you know i that's the joy of my life <laughs> it's it's pretty awesome so i kind of do that and then when they go to sleep you know I, I go to work uh as it were so it's uh it's fun for me but it hasn't changed a lot aside from dealing with you know the the homeschool components of it all. But I, I actually, I kind of embrace that. I don't know. I feel like we got taught some bullshit when we were kids. Like, they didn't tell us. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I heard us. math has changed. I have heard that math yeah. has changed. And there's yeah, just not no a, way. The way they teach it now is just stupid. It don't even make no damn sense. It's like, uh, what are you doing? Like, really? Orlando, <laughs> so are you, are you homeschooling right now? You're the teacher? Well, for my, well, my daughter needs help, of course. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I, 
you know, for me, it's just like the stupid ways in which, you, you know, you don't need seven steps to do something on certain things. It's like they've made it, they've kind of dumbed it down to make it like for kids that don't really get it or something. It's very strange. But it's also just like the story of Columbus and all those other components. I mean, frankly, if, you know, my daughter's a young black girl, and she's looking at the education system, it pretty much tells her she's worthless and hasn't contributed anything to society. But here's all these people that did. And that shit ain't even true. So, you know, for me, it's an opportunity to talk to my daughter about, you know, the OMAX who developed this land 1500 years uh, before Columbus even showed up. The Olmecs were black. So, and the Aztecs came after them. So this entire insane narrative that we all came over here on a slave ship and we were here 1500 years before is a little weird. But again, I think it's just important for her to understand, you know, what her footprint is in history. And I'm embracing homeschooling on that level because I feel like if circumstances don't force you to do certain things, then you rely on the system to do them. And and subsequently, I think you wind up with more of the same. So, you know, yeah, that's, I mean, that's mm-hmm. interesting, right? I think obviously we're living in a moment that has obviously been highly polarizing and highly political. And I, I have been wondering, especially because quarantine is also the the weird little puzzle piece that we weren't expecting to fit and mm-hmm. kind of connect everything. How has that been when it comes to you? having these conversations with your daughter who is a black woman and especially after you know seeing the news probably or hearing her friends talk about Breonna Taylor yeah I, th- I guess it's beneficial to tell her the hit the true history but is that do you see it really affecting her like what she sees happening in the media and the conversations that are going especially living in the south uh, I, I, look I think I think yes and no yeah I, I think she's got a lot of stuff on her plate going on right now right and I think that she's taking all of it in you know it's always hard for me to qualify on some level just because because I feel like we're in a different time. Technology has given us access to information that and, and events that have always been going on. Yeah. Now we know about them. And I think there's a lot to be said for how you look at those circumstances. And I think a lot to be said for how you choose to live your life moving forward, like where you place value and where you don't. And so I think I'm, I'm really focused on teaching her how not to make things that are not her problems her problem, and how to maintain a joyful, positive outlook on life by utilizing the tools that she has. Like she has a lot of tremendous tools that she was given. So she can choose to focus on those things or she can choose to focus on these other things. But I think that she will be more successful in her life and have a more joyful life is she focuses on how to use the gifts she does have to create the world she wants to see rather than the alternative. So, uh, you know, I grew up in the deep South, you know, so, and I had a lot of crazy experiences as a kid, you know, I've talked about some of them in the past, but, you know, I've had a cross burned in my front yard before I know what that looks like. I know what that feels like. And, you know, uh, I've been pulled by cops many times by the same, you know, with all guns drawn, telling me step by step how to move or they're going to blow my brains out. So and that's, you know, I've had that experience a, a number of times. That's not a not a fun experience, but I know what that feels like. And, and I say all that to say um, I've also had great experiences with cops as well, so much so that I'm a deputy sheriff. Anna, because I was down there for a year and I decided to do that. I did a movie in Shreveport thriller called Beyond a Reasonable Doubt. And then right after that, I went to New Orleans to do a film called Cirque du Freak. And then right after that, I went to a little town called Hamilton right outside of Baton Rouge mm-hmm. to do a film called Seconds Apart. And during that period of time, I, you know, a lot of cops on set because we shut down this street, that street, you know, films are about exteriors generally. And we were arguing back and forth about how hard their job was or wasn't. And I took a bet that said I could become a cop before I got out of Louisiana. So I did what I needed to do, took the test and I could already shoot and do that. I'm a Southern boy. And so before I left Louisiana, I became a deputy sheriff in Plaquemine County. Wow. And so has it changed what? your view on cops yeah. or defund the police? And I mean, I want to be clear. We, we, we talking about 2000. Right. I was wondering what the, the year was. 2003. I mean, I was, it's probably been true for about 10 years, almost nine years or something like that. I'm wrong. Yeah. About nine years, not 2003, yeah. about nine years. So, I mean, I don't, it doesn't change my view on humans which I think is a problem, if I'm being really honest. My view, my point in telling that story is to say that I've had a myriad of experiences from various different points of view in the, throughout the course of my life. And that doesn't change any of how the system views me. I'm still very accustomed to what it's like to walk into a room during my early days in Hollywood and 
have white women be afraid of me, you know, just because I'm a black dude. So I've, I've had all those experiences, but none of those experiences created uh, a person who has hate in his heart or who looks at white people and says, all white people are bad and what the, that's not what happened out of those experiences. Those experiences just gave me a lot of information to take in, but they didn't inform any opinion that makes me think that, that this is all this set of people, or this is all that set of people. But it did help me understand why this was repeatedly happening and help me understand that there's a system in place that makes that possible. And so I think for me, it's more important for me to point out to my daughter how to navigate the system, which ain't going nowhere, and how to be successful in navigating said system while maintaining who she is and maintaining her rights, no matter who it is. I don't give a if it's me or her mom. Her rights are her rights, and they are not to be violated or summarily taken under any circumstances. She has the ability to advocate for herself. She should always stand up for herself, and she should unequivocally fear no one for any reason. So for me, it is about empowering her in the world to speak truth to power and to do the things in the world that she wants to do unapologetically, rather than cowering through the world as if these mother are going to do something to my daughter. That's just, that's not how I want her to walk. That's not how I walked. My birth certificate says I'm colored. It does not say I'm human. It says I'm sapient. Wow. Let's be really clear. I, I understand exactly what I mean when I say institutional racism. I have it in writing on my birth document that I'm not human. I'm a sapient. I understand what it fundamentally means to have a system devalue you as a human being. That's not new. Yeah. So I can't, what am I going to do? Yeah, but I, I do you know, wonder though, and I do wonder, especially with you being in Hollywood, and I think we're having so many interesting conversations about, you know, inclusivity again. and diversity, again. the same repetitive stuff, again. And which is really interesting. I just... I would love to know how your version of like storytelling and what you decide to be a part of kind of um, has changed over the course of your career. Like, has have you thought about it differently over the course? Like you said, you had full awareness of who you were in this country and what that meant for you. But now looking at where we are currently, has that changed? No, I mean, I was born in Mobile, Alabama. I grew up in the deep South. I've never been confused about what it was. I've been confused by lots of things on all sides of the coins, but I never been confused about what it was for me. I've never been confused about the fact that though my situation, I might be looked at this way by white people. I also know that I'm gonna be looked at this way at Jack and Jill by the light-skinned black folk. I know I didn't pass the paper bag test. So what, what version of bias was I going to get today, right? You know, it's not as if any of those experiences didn't happen to me. They did, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I, I just don't think that if, if I wanted to focus my life on those experiences, I guess I could. But I just think that that's a wasted, for me, my choice and being deliberate about your choices, I think is key. My choice is not to focus my life and live my life in that way, right? This I've been through so many diversity revolutions in Hollywood. I'm not under the illusion that any of this is real. I know what this is. I've seen this before many, many, many times. This is not real. So you don't think this time is different, Orlando? Like when you have the Oscars no, announcing not. new diversity inclusion rules for Best no, Picture nominees, what are your, what's your take? No, none of this is real. So can it ever evolve? I mean, it needs to. I agree. It does need to, but there must be a system to dismantle the system. If you can't, you, you can't call it out and then say it, it, it's self-corrected. Really? <laughs> it doesn't self-correct. It's a system. So let's be honest about what it is. It is understood that if you work a job and a white man works a job, that you will make less for doing the same job. That's understood. That's not a secret. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows I'm going to make less and everybody knows a black woman's going to make less too. Everybody knows that black women at the bottom of the totem pole. Everybody. A black woman created me too. Nobody gave a for years until some privileged white lady said that me too. And then suddenly it was a movement. Before then it wasn't a movement until some white lady said it was a movement. Suffrage went to white women, didn't go to black women. Get out of here. We inflict our trauma unwantingly at black women and at their offspring, these damn black men. So that that is the, just the truth of what it is, all right? Uh, it's a reflection of the art that I like to do. It's always been a reflection of the story I want to tell. I was telling jokes in the movie Evolution about the black guy always dying first. And then what happened in the first Jurassic Park? The black boy died first. Hell, I made that joke then before they made that damn movie. I listen to people repeat my jokes back to me. I think just hilarious. I said that 25 years ago. But my point is this, 
Yeah. Now, we got to, white people are not equipped en masse to accept the reality that they do not understand. And that's nothing that is, shall we say, that's not a fault, not placing a blame on white people for that. There is simply no way for you to understand racism. You've never experienced it. So how could you possibly understand what you've never experienced? You can read about it all you want, but it's not the same thing. I can't tell you the nuances of sexism. How could I? I'm a man. That's ludicrous. Now, I have certainly seen things suffered at the hands of the Black women who raised me, and I've certainly been a part of those conversations, but I'm not a woman, and I don't know how that plays out. So to say that I'm going to speak about sexism with any sort of efficacy, that you should take my words to be policy, should be a misnomer. Yet white men talk about policy as it relates to women's issues all the time. I don't know why. I don't know why people talk about prison reform and yeah. they've never been in prison. I don't understand if anybody could reform the place. It's somebody who's been in it for 25 years. But see, they don't have a voice. Why? Because we diminish those human beings. Why? So my point is, there's a system in place here. So let's not pretend that because there's a yet another diversity movement that suddenly there's going to be diversity. You're telling me a resurgence of all the Black shows of the 80s and 90s is diversity? I'm glad to see a resurgence because I know a lot of those actors and I'm glad to see those shows celebrated, but shouldn't they have been celebrated in the first place? What are we talking about here? Don't placate me and paw at me like I'm a child. This country was built on racism. This country is still racist. And until this country gets real about that, that's what this country is going to be. But that ain't nothing to be mad about. How the fuck is that new? So, Orlando, you you consult and you're executive producing still and you, you work, you're busy. So what do you tell these companies if they're not doing it the right way? Because you're still in Hollywood. You you're still playing the game. You know what I mean? This is your work. Listen, I don't talk to people about the things that they don't care about, and I don't hold them accountable for things unwantingly. And and I say that to say the following. Uh, It's not my job to educate white people on how to be humans. That's not my job. It's their job. And I don't accept that responsibility because I doesn't matter what I think. People make choices. What I live by or what I try and live by is a, a simple creed. And that creed is that God knows we've all made mistakes. I've certainly made mistakes. And I certainly tried to learn from those mistakes. But I know that the thing about choices is the consequences of those choices, they wind up with you. They're your choices. It doesn't matter how I feel about your choices. You're going to make your choice, no matter how I feel about it. I choose not to be mad at you for having the right to choose. I'm not going to be mad at you for that. That's your choice. I respect that. And I'm not going to punish you because I don't agree with your choice. That's your choice. I respect that. But the consequences of your choice are yours. And I'm not going to try and solve the consequences of your choices. I can't do that. They are your consequences because they are your choices. So I did not make any of the decisions that went into building an institution to keep slavery in place and legal so that the United States of America continue to profit off the backs of women and, and, and black folk. That system was put in place without me when they tried to pretend the NRA and the Second Amendment weren't forever linked and connected. And the KKK were, aren't all connected. Though That trio's, they tight. Hey, they friend, friend. <laughs> they Orlando back, knows. Back, back. I, I swear, Orlando knows everything. Like I, he's, you know, <laughs> no, you I don't. just listen to. I, want, no, I mean, but, I, I but, love but listening being, to you talk. I'm about just it. being real about it. My point is, it's like those things that. are linked. But I'm yeah. not mad at them about that. Those are the realities. I accept those. I was born into those choices. What I'm gonna do? Be mad at you, Shira? Why? <laughs> <laughs> really? Like that's just dumb. No, I'm not mad at you, okay? But there are still people to be mad at. But I do wonder though. But no, no, there's no, but listen, the only way forward, I used to joke and, you know, I would say, listen, if we're going to solve the Israel-Palestinian problem, then all of the uh, Israeli uh, refugee kids should be adopted by Palestinians and then vice versa, the Israelis, right? And in that process, you believe things will get better. But that's a misnomer because you strip those, those people of their culture. At the same time, you're simply assimilating them and the culture is important. So the real choice is how do we respect each other's cultures and respect each other's lives, right? And we don't respect each other's cultures and we don't respect each other's lives. And entertainment tells us that there's a high respect for white culture, but there's not a high respect for black culture. We understand these things, right? And we understand that the treatment of other human beings has largely been driven by what's been seen in popular media. It used to be okay to say to the moon, Alice, big funny joke, I'm going to punch my wife. Now we would look at that as barbaric. We also look at that as classic, right? And that's how we hopefully has evolved as storytellers. So as a creative, that's what I talk about. 
I talk about how to evolve as a storyteller, how to continue to tell stories that excite me. That's why I was doing things like Madiba and playing Oliver Tambo, the true architect of the dismantling of apartheid, the true architect of what is the African Union voting bloc in the United Nations. That's Oliver Tambo. People don't know that man's name. He's an important figure and has been an important figure in my life. I've always been focused on that no matter what the genre of work I've done is, there's no way to take me as an artist from that. That's who I am. I'm baked in that. I've always been that. When I was writing sitcoms, I was too edgy for the different worlds and those shows that I was writing on, but I was the one doing the edgy shit that I wanted to do. I've always been the one that wanted to push the envelope. And there's always been resistance to pushing the envelope because there's always been a belief that the narrative that you're pushing isn't traditionally black. Yes. Okay. I've I, never pushed the traditional yeah. black narrative. And so there's, it's always been met with resistance by black folk. Mm-hmm. And it's always been met with more resistance by white folk. And it's always been celebrated by fans. Okay. So let's talk about that right real quick, because I do think there's a, there's a lot of discourse about black sci-fi and fantasy. And obviously you did American gods. And right now we have Lovecraft country and there's this complicated gray area of representation how has how should we be looking at representation? Because it feels like if it's not exactly what black folks want or people of color want, then it's not good content. There's, they're very highly critical of it. But in in another voice, they're saying, "Hey, I want to. We want to see ourselves. We want to. We want to fight for having black content on air." What What's the line here? I mean, I can only speak to it based on how I see it as a creative. It's hard for me to discuss it, you know, in other terms, right? I think that. The problem is what I believe I am tired of seeing and what I consistently have always heard voice is there are plenty of of stories with Black folk in them if they are victims. There are lots of victim stories. What there are not are stories where we are not victims. We just are. And therefore, we are advocating on behalf of what we wish to advocate about in the way that we wish to advocate unapologetically. There is an apology in a victim story because you're sorry it happened to them. Mm. So it forces your gaze down. And what we're trying to do is advocate for stories where you look at people evenly, not down at someone, not up at someone, just evenly, just straight. And those stories are the ones that are the most difficult to tell because the executives don't understand how those stories are Black. They don't fit the narrative of Black. So just telling a story that is even is a problem because it's not black enough and it doesn't check off the agenda to say I'm not racist. So we're making this content so you don't feel racist. We're not making this content because we're trying to empower interesting storytellers of color or female storytellers or just simply different storytellers so that they can tell stories that empower and enlighten us or, or show us the ugliest sides of ourselves. And the reason we don't do that is because the guilds are overwhelmingly white and there's no way to become a member of those guilds unless you work on these types of shows. So there's not a pipeline or process that can put them into the mainstream business because you must be a guild member. And these are the barriers to entry that are real. But here we are in yet another diversity movement, but you ain't heard nobody say that. Why? And, and you, don't th- you don't think with people like them obviously being aware and then they're hiring more execs who are uh, women or people of color or black and, and that will make a difference with those decisions. L- let me tell you a story. I was doing a show uh, uh, many moons ago yeah. and, uh, and I'm not going to name names because you will know people. How many moons ago was it? I mean, first of all, our, our show is called Let's Go There. We so, go there. <laughs> so if you don't go there, you better go there. <laughs> but not trying to be disparaging. Yeah, don't yes. be disparaging. We, yeah. we appreciate that. We so, respect that. So let me just, but, but, I'm gonna, but the story is the truth. And, and, it's a, and it speaks to exactly what you're saying. So imagine a show on the biggest night of television history. I'll tell you the lineup. I won't tell you the show. Biggest night in television history. 40 million people don't change the channel. Cosby, The Different World. Cheers, Wings, L.A. Law, Dan Rather. That's net, When people say television, that's what they really mean. That's the holy grail. On one of those shows, I was just got to Hollywood. I had been there 30 seconds. My boss was a guy from Brooklyn, uh, white, Jewish dude from Brooklyn. I'm not sure who grew up in a culture that was diverse. 
black kids, Puerto Rican kids, the whole nine. He was the only male producer in a room full of female executives. And there was more than one black female executive in that room. A young actress who is now a superstar and Oscar winner came in and she auditioned. She murdered the role. And the person advocating for her was the white man who said, we got our winner. She's awesome. Let's do it. And the question in the room was, was she black enough? And the way she got that role is that white man went to two of the stars of the show and informed them that this had happened. And then they became active and also advocating on that young lady's behalf. And she got the job. Wow. So that room was occupied with, with, there was one man in that room. All those rooms were women. And as I said, there was more than one woman of color in that room. There was more than two. There was more than three. Yet the discussion in that room was still about who is, who isn't black enough. There was still a, a call being made in that room. And I'm glad that it came out the way it did. And I'm sure all of those people hopefully feel that way as well. But that conversation happened. Okay. Now, who am I? Who, do I blame those individuals for that? Or do I blame the system that made them think that that's something that they had to consider? Mm. What we believe is that if you put these people in the room, that it's going to fix the system that made them have to consider that and that they are now somehow culpable because they have the job. I beg to differ. They knew that that had to be considered because they knew it was going to come up. And they were simply discussing something that was very real that they themselves had to contend with. But that didn't change the bias at all. So when I look at these systems and I hear what people say, I'm mindful that I was fired from American Gods 10 days before I was supposed to go to work for coming in and helping them do the work that nobody wanted to do during season two in order for the season three showrunner to have a job. So help me understand how it's my fault that people like my character. How was it in the best fiscal sense for you to fire me? It only hurt you financially. Right. So if it's about money, if it's about dollars and cents, then you should have been fired for completely destroying, yeah. burning through cash. But white people, good, decent white people are happy to call that bias, but they are uncomfortable calling it racism because mm. they need to feel okay about their racism, right? They don't want to acknowledge it. Yeah. And let's talk about that. That was, I mean, we actually reconnected because that story came up and we were like, wow, let's get him on the show. And this was months ago, right? Beginning of the year. Well, oh, and I was right. I was watching was it last show. year. I'm actually a pretty big fan. And we've had Christian Chenoweth on the show before. And we were yeah. you know, oh, I've yeah. loved Christian. And I was, I mean, it was devastating to to hear yeah. the news and hear how outspoken you were about it. You know, it was a moment. But, uh, only because for me, there's only two things that are important here. It's not my first time experiencing, you know, bias. <laughs> not my second, my first, or my 50th. So I really didn't have any reason. But for someone at this stage in my career to be in the position where a studio can sit on my acting rights for a three year period, only have me work 21 days and keep me out of work throughout that entire time, that, that's a high seven-figure loss. And there's nothing I can do about that high seven-figure loss because those entities were sitting on my television rights. Now, while they are screaming and applauding that they love Mr. Nancy and they love my work and this and that and the other thing, keep in mind that I worked 21 days in three years. So if you love my work, you would have thought that you would have put my black ass on set more often rather than keeping me off of set. And when I did go to set for most of those days, you actually didn't write anything. I had to write it all for myself. So under those circumstances, it seems pretty cut and dry in terms of what, what the value was, both to them now, to them then. But we don't hold them accountable for breaking the law. What law did they break? Well, these companies are publicly traded. They have shareholders. If someone in charge is making decisions that aren't in the best interest of the shareholders simply because they hold some bias, no matter what that bias is, we should probably remove those individuals because they're costing their investors money by simply doing dumb shit that they shouldn't be doing, particularly if they're doing it for reasons that are illegal, like, say, firing somebody 10 days before they're supposed to go to work which is patently illegal on its face or sitting on someone's rights for three and a half years. But yet and again, there's still a healthy amount of people who would love to label me a troublemaker 
rather than say I had every right to stand up for my rights for the people causing the fiscal harm that they caused to me and my family. And of <laughs> course, for people who might or might not know what happened, you were you were working there, they fired you, but there was, there was some stuff about your character because you had stood up and said, they should be writing this type of stuff around this character. And then what did no, they say? No, what happened was really simple. In season one of American Gods, yeah. it, was written, it was written in, by Brian Fuller and Michael Green. So the slave ship was written by Brian Fuller and Michael Green. Yeah. Incredible writers, friends. I love these men. It was beautiful. When we got to season two, there were lots of writing issues. And when we began season two, they hadn't written Mr. Nancy, but to be fair, they hadn't really written any of the characters. So we were at House on the Rock and I had had to rewrite, a, a do some work on a scene. And Neil Gaiman came up to me and he said, we don't have a character Bible for your character. Will you write a character Bible for Mr. Nancy? And I said, sure, Neil, absolutely, no problem. He said, awesome. So I wrote a character Bible for Mr. Nancy and I sent it to Neil Gaiman. And Neil Gaiman sent back in all caps, I love it, spread it around. And then I did that. But in the interim, while that was happening and subsequently, I kept being asked to write other characters. What? Because those characters were in the scene with me. So when I rewrite a scene that I'm in and then Bilquis is in that scene and then Shadow is in that scene, that means I'm also rewriting them. And so- Because the writers, the initial writers didn't know how to have the conversation. So by the time we got to episode four, they were like, hey, we want you because I wasn't in episode three. They were like, hey, for episode four, there's a speech in that episode. We want it to be Mr. Nancy's big speech like on the slave ship and they'd written what they thought the slave ship speech should be and it was about a white jesus who was uh hanging on the wall and built in and ebus's uh, funeral home ebus the god of death played by demore barnes and i was like that doesn't make any sense why would a black god have a white god hanging in his home he's not a black man who worships a white jesus he's a black god so I got rid of that and I wrote the snatched speech that went viral and what have you. And that subsequently gave me Bilquist and Ebus for that episode. So suddenly I was writing that storyline. Well, that storyline continues to episode five. So then Rodney Barnes and I wrote episode five together and then we came to episode six and they wanted Mr. Nancy to be in the forties. And I was oh like, eh, it doesn't make any sense for Mr. Nancy would be in the forties unless Mr. Nancy has a reason to be in this theater. What was his reason for being in the theater? He got 20% of Olympia's worship. So that's why he's the stagehand backstage. Why else would Mr. Nancy be a stagehand backstage in the 1940s for this Donar story? So because he got 20% of Olympia's worship, it made sense for me to make him into that stagehand. So I wrote all that stuff. And we talked about Thor uh, being a member of the LGBTQ plus community. And that was his rage. And then that became, and I wrote all that scene. So were you a writer, stuff. like a lead writer at this point? I was running the show at this point. So yeah, season finale what? and what have you. So that is what has been documented on. That's what Neil Gaiman and everyone has admitted to. I was writing American Gods. I was running American Gods. Okay. Now I had allies in the doing of that uh, without question. And the cast was most certainly an ally because I was somebody who went to them. But there was Lisa Custer, the line producer, Chris Byrne, the co-executive producer, Padlin McKinley, the other producer, and Ian McShane, who was arguably and easily my biggest supporter in doing so. Ian was like, I'll take care of the white people you handle. I was like, I got it, okay? But it was important to Ian, it was important to me. We did that work, we got it done. The studio was problematic. But you were doing this work, but not getting really any credit for wait, it. Wait, well, I, I, well, the problem was, is that all I said to them was, they said they didn't want to pay me. And I said, <laughs> I appreciate that you don't want to pay me. I understand that. But this is a Writers Guild show. And I am a yeah. Writers Guild member of tenure for over 25 years. There is absolutely no way I'm going to go against my guild. And, and I can't do that. You're asking me to go against my guild, which will get me thrown out of my guild. Doesn't make sense. I'm not going to do that for you because you asked me to write on your show. I didn't ask you. You asked me. So all through that tenure in that time, their conversation with my management was, yes, he'll be a producer on season three. Yes, he's writing Mr. Nancy. Yes, he'll be a writer on the show because I'd already done all that in season two, which is why you see me as a consulting producer 
and why I have writer's credit on yeah. the show. All right. So that's why, because when we started doing our additional photography, then that I had to rewrite episode three. I had to do the additional writings on episode two. So I wrote on, worked on all those episodes. I think the only episode probably I didn't have, I had very little to do with was episode seven. But my point in saying all that is this, I didn't barge my way into the room. They made a request. That's not my fault because I'm a Writers Guild member. It's in my bio, what you don't know who the f yeah. hired. I did my job and I did all the jobs of the people who you sent home. When the show launched, I didn't go out in the press and tell everybody this. I said nothing. In fact, I was doing a marketing activation four stars during the off season. And then 10 days before we're supposed to go back to work, y'all say you're not picking up my option. Wow. How's that possible? I laid out, me and Rodney Barnes wrote the season finale. We set what you're doing in season wow. three. You didn't change what you did for season three. You're going to Lakeside. What are you talking about? You can't change Lakeside. We've already shot that fool. That was my pen. So the insanity was listening to them talk about it in that way. But the greater insanity to me was that if that's what you wanted, wanted to do, you should have released me at the end of season two. As soon, as soon as we wrapped in October, December, January, you should have released me. I shouldn't have been hearing about that in September of 2019. You could have told me that in December of 2018. So you tell me in September. And the thing that people forget is that I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything in October. I didn't say anything in November. I didn't say yeah. anything until December 14th. And the only reason I said something is because the funeral home clip was going viral and people were blowing me up on social media about it. And people were going back and subscribing to stars and watching and wow, wanting to watch yeah. American Gods. And they wanted to talk about the character and what was going to happen in season three and how it made them feel and how it impacted them. And I got thousands of messages from people. It was overwhelmingly beautiful in ways I will never be able to explain. I am so deeply grateful to what that experience was just for me as an artist with fans. But while that was going on, I had already been fired. And the people who were retweeting and celebrating it were Fremantle and stars. <laughs> wow. So I'm just watching it go down for months. So, so at that point- finally, yeah. I, that's when I finally said, this is ridiculous. It's December 13th. I'm going to go into January 1 with the entire world thinking that they're about to see me in season three of American Gods. And I was fired back in September. Not only am I going to have a bunch of angry fans on my case, Fremantle will not send me a release that says they no longer sit on my rights. They will not release me from my contract. So I had to go to the Screen Actors Guild and say, hey, I can't work because they won't release me from my television rights contract right now. I had to get the Screen Actors Guild to give me a release so that I could go back to work in January. That is what happened. And that's the but thing I'm, about you know, Fremantle, wow. right? Fremantle has been obviously yeah. Gabrielle Union, America's Got Talent. Um, also, I May Destroy, well, not first, the second season, or the first season of Chewing Gum. They were a part of that process with Michaela Cole. It seems Absolutely. like when you're, when you're talking about this dismantling of a system, it seems like they're just going to continue to do what they're doing. There's no repercussions for their actions. No repercussions. Not, look, SAG is investigating, their attorneys involved in all that madness, certainly. But there are still no repercussions for any of those actions. It's nothing to be done. They're still operating business as usual. There's a new season on. I mean, that, you know, everything is moving forward. They're a part of the institution. And yes, the institutions, the NBCUs of the world are absolutely trying to make changes. Anybody who said they weren't, that would be untrue. Mm -hmm. They are trying to make changes internally. They are trying to make moves. They are trying to address those issues. But they are a big machine. They can't make do these things overnight. Yeah. They require time. And I, do I believe that they are attempting to make those changes? Yes, but the best way they can make those changes is by paying women the same amount they pay men and paying black people the same amount they pay white people. And they could do that right now. So I'm not mad at them, but I don't know of any legislation that forbids them from doing that right yeah. now. But it's not done. So I, so I have a question. Where were your allies in all this? All the people that were like Neil Gaiman, and all those folks like and and have they it's, it, it is not neil it's not listen i don't have any issues with neil uh, at all it's not his job but Look, is it i but, mean if they are praising you why can't they still stand firmly in that praise of saying oh my god i'm willing to I put can, my name I, 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 i'll tell you exactly why because neil gaiman is doing uh 
was running his first television show for the first time. And he's got a, a, a son, a child, his boy, and his attention and focus is on fulfilling the many yeah. properties he sold to, to everybody and their mother and being responsible to his wife and being responsible to his child. Is that really and, a fair and, and, excuse? Well, hold on. I'm not giving him an excuse, but, but let me say this. There are also contractual components of things he can do and things he can't do. And I know those contractual components exist. I also know that the last thing he wants to do is torpedo the thing that he makes money from. So he's in a delicate position to not want to torpedo his own check. So I'm not mad at him about any of those things. What I congratulate him and credit him on is this. I do not believe for two seconds that Neil Gaiman asked me to write a character Bible because he didn't know what he was doing. I believe that Neil Gaiman asked that question because it was the right, just, and fair thing to do. He knew I could do the job, and I believe he told me to spread it around because he liked the content he got. And I believe that Neil Gaiman empowered me to do so. And in empowering me to do so, he got what he wanted, which was season two of American Gods completed. So strategically, the executive producer on the show made the move that the studio and the network didn't make to get them home. I can't be mad at him for that any more than I can be bad at Ian McShane for the support that he undoubtedly gave me quietly behind the wings and he ain't said nothing. So it's not that I didn't have supporters. And I wish to point out that when I look at the, the slave ship scene, that is authored by a gay white man and a Jewish white man. When I look at my supporters, I'm talking about two British white men. Okay. So when we talk about these ideas, these concepts, it's important for us to remember people, humans, who those humans are, despite what those humans' mistakes might have been, despite how those humans might have responded in this moment or that moment. It's not fair to paint Neil or Ian or Michael or Brian with that brush. That brush ain't fair to them. And so I don't paint them with that brush because I don't think it's fair to them. And I'm fully capable of advocating on behalf of myself. I don't need their help. That's what the guild and the union was for. And so I believe those things. I try and, 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 and fight for those things because if what we're going to do is say every white person has a bias and racist, okay, sure. I have a different set of bias having grown up as a, a black man. We all have a bias. What we could, okay, what are we going to do? We shooting biases up now? I mean, I mean, it's just so, it's so crazy. It's just so crazy. Oh, you're too fat. Oh, your hands too sweaty. I mean, anybody can find a reason to say you're an and they don't like you if they're looking for a reason to make you an So let's point out who those assholes are and operate with greater care, but let's not just paint people with the brush because of the system. And so that, that for me is just, I try and really push that out because I think it's important for us to have a real look at it rather than laying platitudes and, and horseshit on it and then doing mock outrage and then don't nothing happened because we never addressed the problem because we never understood the problem was. So do you think if this happened now, it would have happened differently or they wouldn't have even done make that decision? Of course it's going to happen. This is going to continue to happen. There's a controversy happening with Warner Brothers right now with Ray Fisher. This is, we're yeah. not talking about anything this ancient history. I mean, uh, the, the bottom line is you can't tell me you've looked at these films and thought that they valued the black people or the black women. I mean, why is Hawk and Marvel movies? Why? What the for just to be a token, okay? They look at diversity as casting. If you wrote the character for anybody and then you cast a, uh, and suddenly you made it a woman, how is that a woman's voice? How? It's not. So if casting is diversity or if diversity is just black and white, when are we going to talk about disabled people? They make up 20% of the population. Their normal is different than our normal. How come their normal is not normal and our normal is normal? What? that about? How come you get an able-bodied person to play a role that a disabled actor could play and then you give the able-bodied person an award for being or pretending to be disabled? Huh? I'm not, that doesn't denigrate Tom Hanks to say he did a bad job in anything like Forrest Gump. I'm not making him out to be a martyr. I'm simply saying that moving forward, we could certainly handle disabled people that could also bring depth understanding humanity that an able-bodied person couldn't bring because they simply don't have that experience, okay? What would Rain Man look like with somebody who really was autistic? How magical might that be if it was uh, Cody who is presently on Got Talent uh, and we were experiencing that story through the eyes of someone like him who has this auditory autism? So my yeah. point 
is, is that these stories are powerful, they're transformative, they're real, and they're normal. That's diversity. You're telling me that that's what this is? No, it's not. I'm not so stupid that I don't know that. I'm not mad at you for trying to change, but you got to really change. Yeah, and hopefully we we see that now. But of course, as you say, there's a lot of different cracks that can happen yeah. along the way. So, Orlando, we've gone. This has been amazing. We have gone there, as our show is called. Um, I mean, we could go there even further. Oh, no, we've we touched the the tip of the iceberg. The tip, obviously. <laughs> Can you can you can you bring us underwater at a certain point? Too? No, That'd be great. actually, I you really need do. more learned people than me to, to truly get beneath the surface. But we we also wanted to talk about what else. I mean, is there anything else you want to talk about that you're working on? Like, I know, we know you're busy. I, there, there are a couple of things I would love to talk about. One is that Ethan Hawke is such an amazing human. I had a great time with him on Good Lord Bird. Uh, James McBride, also an amazing human. This kid, Joshua Caleb Jackson, is, I believe, a, a, he's just a really talented kid. The story of John Brown, the abolitionist, with Ethan Hawke playing the title character of John Brown. If you do not know who John Brown is, John Brown is the man who staged the raid on Harper's Ferry to uh, start an uprising to uh, end and abolish slavery. So he tried to take Harper's Ferry, Virginia, and get a bunch of black folk, free black men, and slaves from the North to take up arms uh, to take over the plantations of the South. Um, he believed that he was anointed by God. He believed that he could not be killed, and any person that he encountered who was um, enslaved, he freed by killing all the white people there. Um, and it begins with uh, him doing that. It's based on a awards uh, award-winning book called uh, "The Good Lord Bird," and it's called "The Good Lord Bird," and it's on Showtime. Um, really excited about that limited series, eight episodes, super fun uh, on that front, and uh, you know. Always doing my silly stuff with sci-fi and sci-fi wire, which is uh, often because we get to talk about nerds of color and a lot of the genre stuff. Love it. And, and push those nerds of color voices uh, more forward. And uh, sci-fi wire has been, uh, and NBCU, I got to say, has been a great partner in that. They've supported me in doing that at Comic-Con. They've supported me in doing, you know, yeah. drum lines. And also they've, they've just been really incredible partners. Um, to push that narrative and to embrace that narrative. So I'm excited to be doing uh, some animated shows with them as well. So I'm doing three different animated shows with them, which I'm super excited about uh, that I'm writing for them. And uh, between that and uh, my other shenanigans, uh, you know, with my little ones, I'm, I'm living a full life. Uh, you're We're working here. with Gabrielle Union and Jessica Alba in their new show, right? Oh yes! Oh my good, LA's oh my finest. God, I'm crazy. Yeah. I really you wanted. Forgot. I really How wanted I to. That? I wanted to talk about that because it's so interesting. Uh, after everything we obviously just discussed, yeah. how's this experience been? Because it's it been was so a great experience seeing you all team up. It was really. First of all, that's my girl. We've known each other for a very, very long time, and uh, she has never been anything but stupid, lovely to me. I, I mean, <laughs> I love that lady. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so. It was super fun to do her show. I really like LA's Finest. I think the writers did a really, they did a great job. Um, I pay an internal affairs investigator and I'm investigating her. Mm. And, uh, okay. and I am, I really like this character because he is a persnickety mother. He is a persnickety mother boy. He, he is right up in your at all times and Sid is so cool that it, it really you know we, we 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 have fireworks with each other as do I have with Dwayne's character her partner because I just don't give up because my disposition is that of a activist in internal affairs um, what I thought would be interesting in that role was to take somebody who was an activist in the streets during these protests and things that we're seeing and, uh, and let's say that they were doing that during the, the L.A. riots in the 90s uh, is the way I saw the character. Um, and they are participating uh, and seeing uh, 15 cops stand around and beat Rodney King. Four get charges out of that 15 and all four be acquitted. What would it be like? If someone who was in those streets is suddenly an internal affairs investigator because he decided that he was going to do the Jackie Robinson and join Major League Basketball, uh, Baseball, join the police force and go at their neck. So to him, a corrupt cop is the lowest form 
of human that there is because they're a wolf in sheep's clothing. So his his joy is, in it is that he wants to be off-putting. His hairdo's a little not quite right. His uh, his tone is very little nasally, needly. He's, he's flippant in his response into terms of the way you say things to him. He wants you to know that he's, you know, he wants something to chew and your ass is it. So I really enjoyed that juxtaposed against the dynamic of, of what Jessica Alva and Gabrielle's characters are in the show and sort of the explosions and I'm all so that. I'm so excited to and watch. They play, they, there so are officers in the LAPD, so it's a, a exactly. lot of stuff around that. Bad Boys franchise. Right, so it's, yeah, also it's a spinoff. So it's a spinoff of the Bad Boys franchise. So what I really liked about it was that, you know, frankly, it was more like, hey, come do these movies with us. Uh, we've got this budget. They're going to invest in the action. They're going to invest in getting these parts right. And, uh, and this is going to be a show about two women in the LAPD who are kicking ass and taking names. But by the same token, they, as so many officers like them, find themselves bending the rules as they see fit. And, and as they try and deliver justice in a system that is unjust. So I was like, I get that. This is the splashy version of it. I want to play. And I thought they scripted him beautifully. And uh, it was a lot of fun. And, and, and yeah, Gabby, really that cast, that was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that show. By the way, we need to go. You never answered my question about defund the police, but it's okay. Who me? Yeah. Oh, you didn't ask. You said you flit, you were a sheriff once, but what do you? Be, what's what's I, what are your I, thoughts in terms of all of that? I believe that city government on whole and where we send governments and resources in a city through the mayor's office um, and through the state is what needs to be examined. I think that you should redistribute uh, police funding. I don't think it makes sense to get rid of systems when systems exist, meaning I didn't think it made sense to build an Obamacare system when you could add those, if you, if you could add those people to Medicare or Medicaid, why not add them and put the funding into an existing system and get people what they need immediately rather than have to build a whole new system that's going to take you a year <laughs> to do so. I think there's something to be said with uh, using the system against itself. So in that sense, after school programs in those communities where you spent all your drug resource money, spend that same amount giving those children tutors, giving those children uh, after uh, food programs, um, uh, identifying those children that need help and who have suffered trauma, yeah. and also identifying those children who are exhibiting the characteristics to be able to be react coders so that you see more diversity at the Googles and tech companies of this world. That happens by funneling money into those communities, and it happens by empowering people who are in those communities right now and who've been fighting for those things for children in those communities for the last 15 or 20 years. You don't need to convene a panel of experts and ask a bunch of people at Harvard or Yale. I can promise you there's some black folk and some white folk and some Latino folk in them communities right now that if you gave them funding could help a ton of children. Fund that. That is how I see it. This whole we're going to defund, we're going to rebuild, we're going to rearrange, like, ah, ah, no, 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 no. Oh, my God. So, well, thank you so much, Orlando. Orlando, you're amazing. You're amazing. That's my two we cents. I, you. Hey, please. Thank y'all. Uh, please take everything I say with a gain of thought. In my active world, all this makes sense. I'm sure there's some smart politician somewhere that's like, shut the f That ain't how you're supposed to do it because of this, this, and this. But in actor world, that's all I got. Makes sense. <laughs> all right. You're in great. In actor world. <laughs> well, thank Orlando, you we appreciate your time. 